Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Savior Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, this is a mini episode for the Come Follow Me assignment, May 11th through 17th, Mosiah 18 through 24. We have entered into a covenant with him. And the reason it's a mini episode is because if you saw on social media this past week, I said I was taking a break this past weekend um, when I was supposed to record the full-length episode of this. Um, I'd gotten some negative feedback, and it had kind of thrown me for a loop. And I also wasn't feeling well, and it was just like a whole weekend of just like, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And so I put on my social media that I wasn't recording an episode this past weekend. And I got so many lovely, supportive replies that, guys, I just, my heart was full and overflowing. And I'm so grateful to you guys for your continued support, for your prayers, for your love. Um, I just, I felt it all. And I'm so grateful to you for that. And I will continue to record episodes, I promise, and we'll continue to learn about the scriptures together. But I felt like I couldn't leave this one episode behind. I couldn't skip it. Because here's the thing. Every week when I study our Come Follow Me material, there are things that pop out to me that I kind of like fixate on and kind of study more about. And it's funny to me because these chapters are literally some of my favorite stories in the Book of Mormon, especially talking about, you know, King Limhi's people and Alma's people and burdens being placed on their back, but being strengthened so they couldn't even feel them and the ways that they were escaping and things like that. Like, I felt like this is my favorite chapters in the Book of Mormon. I should be able to talk about this and say good things about it. But here's the thing. That wasn't what I was fixated on this week. And what I was fixated on seemed like such a minute, imp- like unimportant detail, but I could not let it go. And to the point that I'm like sit- still sitting there yesterday being like, I just, I can't let this go. So I decided, I'm like, I'm just going to record a mini episode about it and we'll just, that will be it. I'll let it go after that. So here is what... I'm fixated on. And it's not even in Come Follow Me. It's just part of the reading this week. Um, I was comparing and contrasting the baptisms that Alma performed and the ones that King Limhi wanted to be performed. And specifically, the scripture that kind of threw me for a tailspin this week was in Mosiah 21, 33. And so this is King Limhi and his people, and they have decided that they were desirous to be baptized, but there was none in the land that had authority from God. And Ammon declined doing this thing, considering himself an unworthy servant. And so at first, I thought it was just me being nosy, because I am definitely nosy. And so me being like, why was he unworthy? Like, what did he do? You know, which is bad. Bad, Lexi. Bad, bad, bad. But (laughs) that's just my general nature. I'm so nosy. And so in this case, I'm like super, super nosy. But I started thinking about it. I'm like, why would he be considered unworthy? But then... I thought there might be a couple different reasons, 
But then I was starting to think about like the translation of the Book of Mormon. And does unworthy in the translation mean the same thing that we in 2020 consider unworthy to be? You know, growing up in a culture in the church where we talk about temple recommends and we talk about standards and being worthy to enter the temple and being worthy to hold the priesthood and perform priesthood ordinances, does that have a different meaning than perhaps what Ammon said when he said he was unworthy and perhaps what Joseph Smith decided to say when he was doing the translations. Now, I also started researching translations because this kind of led me down a rabbit trail. And so I found a really interesting article in the Deseret News. It's from the Deseret News, August 18th, 2016. I'll post this on social media and my blog. And this particular article is actually written by, let's see who it is. It's Daniel Peterson, who teaches Arabic studies at BYU's Middle Eastern Text Initiative. And he directs mormonscholarstestify.org. Okay. So he is a big scholar, focuses on Middle Eastern texts and things like that. And the article itself is called, Is the Book of Mormon a Literal Translation from the Plates? And I wanted to talk about this too. This still isn't the thing that like I'm focused on. I'm focused on Ammon calling himself unworthy. But I still want to talk about this because I feel like this is an important point that when we are studying the Book of Mormon that we need to be aware of. But here's what Daniel Peterson said. So he was talking about he's been at a seminar and then he went and he there was like a big seminar on like a particular Persian piece of poetry. And they said this one translation was perhaps the most inaccurate. And so he's, he's talking about the different translations of Middle Eastern poetry, right? And so he said, as an example of how translations can be different depending on the cultural situation that you're in, the example he gave was, suppose you read the sentence, the undesirable element was removed from the bar. In isolation, divorced from any context, you might immediately assume, I did, that it refers to a bouncer ejecting a rowdy drunk from a tavern. But that isn't necessarily so. Perhaps a lab technician purified an unwanted chemical pollutant from an ingot or bar of metal. Maybe a composer removed a quarter note from a bar of music. Maybe an attorney was disbarred. Perhaps a piece of brown lettuce was taken from the salad bar. Conceivably, a candy company that, in the wake of a national survey, dropped an ingredient from its best-selling chocolate bar. Without context and cultural information, many radically different possibilities exist. How should a translator handle such ambiguities? One way might to be so to expand the translation a bit beyond simple literalism. For example, to render bar as bar association, or to replace undesirable element with unwanted pollutant. We always lack full context and cultural information for foreign ancient texts. Okay, so that makes sense to me, Lexi, as a reader, but how does that impact our translation of the Book of Mormon? Well, let's keep reading. Daniel Peterson says, To choose a famous example in Gotes, Gotes? I always forget how to pronounce his name, Um, G-O-E-T-H-E, the famous German poet, Faust. Faust struggles to translate John 1-1. In the beginning was the word, says the King James Bible, but logos can mean or imply logic, reason, discussion, argument, an intermediary divine being in John's contemporary, the middle Platonic Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, or perhaps even a council. The English word, as quoted in John 1.1, simply doesn't contain all of those senses. No single word can. Something, and perhaps much, is lost. 
Daniel Peterson continues on a little bit later where he says, When people ask me whether the Book of Mormon is a literal translation from the plates, I tell them that, lacking those plates, we can't possibly know. But I also tell them that there's really no such thing as a literal translation. And we probably wouldn't want one anyway. It might be at least partly incomprehensible. Incomprehensible to us because we don't understand the culture where it's coming from. Um, And the reason I want to point this out is because a lot of time detractors of the Book of Mormon will take words that are in the Book of Mormon and say, that's not a Middle Eastern word. Like, of course, the Book of Mormon is not true because that's not a Middle Eastern word. But if Joseph Smith, when he was translating, was instead of trying to do a literal translation, was trying to encapsulate the feeling of a word in the best nomenclature that he had at the time, that would make more sense as to why we have some of these words in the Book of Mormon. An example of this would be at the end of Jacob, where Jacob says, Edu. Okay, obviously, Jacob, a prophet from the ancient world, was not speaking French, right? But what we have is Jacob was ending his book in the Book of Mormon in a melancholy way, but very formally. So how would Joseph Smith at the time, who has his, you know, modern nomenclature, how would he be able to translate that formal sense of melancholy goodbye? Like, how would he be able to translate that? And he came up with the word adieu. Okay, so that's why we have Jacob ending with a French word. That's one of the words that people who detract from the Book of Mormon love to pick on. Okay, so when we come to a word like unworthy, Joseph Smith is taking that word, that whatever it was that was written down there in Mosiah, and translating it using his own nomenclature of the time into what he believed that that kind of feeling and that word was. And so he came up with unworthy in this particular instance. This is how Ammon felt. He felt unworthy. So I wondered, like the example given of John 1.1, what were possibly some other words that unworthy could mean? So I went and looked it up in my trusty thesaurus. Some other similar words to unworthy is undeserving, not good enough for, ineligible for, unqualified for, or unfit for. Okay. So that kind of, you know, that's like the world, like what the world thinks outside of, you know, our little Mormon bubble that we have sometimes. So then I started thinking, well, what do we know about Ammon? We actually meet him for the very first time in Mosiah 7, verse 3. And what's happening here is King Mosiah wants to know what's happened to the people who went to Lehi-Nephi. So he picks out 16 of their strong men in verse 2 that might go up to the land of Lehi-Nephi to inquire concerning their brethren. And then in verse 3. And it came to pass that on the morrow they started to go up, having one with them, Ammon. He being a strong and mighty man, a descendant of Zarahemla, he was also their leader. And, you know, they go, they travel, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we get to verse 6. And Ammon took three of his brethren, and their names were Amalekai, Helam, and Hem, and they went down into the land of Nephi. So it seems like these 16 men kind of split up, maybe into groups of four. That would make sense because Ammon took three of his like little followers with him. So the four of them are the ones that actually go and discover Limhi and Limhi's people. Well, we hear that Ammon is a strong and mighty man in verse three. That would tend to make me think that he was more of kind of a warrior type, a warrior explorer. Maybe he wasn't actually a priest. So when he didn't have the authority. So then when King Limhi asks him to baptize his people, Ammon doesn't have the priesthood. So he says, I'm unfit to baptize these people recognizing that he doesn't have the power and authority from God. You know, maybe that's what that meant there. Um, Another example or something else that I thought of is what if, you know, he maybe did have the priesthood, 
but he did not have the authority from his presiding priesthood authority to establish a new like church colony or church branch to baptize people. You know, you have to have the authority from your presiding leader to be able to baptize people. You can't just go off baptizing people willy-nilly. So maybe he didn't have the authority there to do that either. The basic answer, though, to all of this, is was Ammon worthy or not, was he sinning or not, is that we don't know. Sometimes I get really frustrated with Mormon because he goes off on these tangents about stuff or he'll tell you exactly where Lehi and his family camped, but he won't give you one or two sentences that really kind of explain things a little bit further, right? And so, I don't know, I get, I get frustrated with him. So to me, there's like, I guess four, four possible reasons why Ammon could say that he was unworthy. First one is that he was morally unworthy or unclean, as we would think, you know, today. Maybe he was out late with Limhi's daughters. I don't know. Okay. Second one is that he didn't have the priesthood, didn't have the priesthood authority to do so. Third one would be that he wasn't given authority by his presiding priesthood leader to be able to baptize and create, you know, a new branch of the church there in Limhi's area. Or fourth, Perhaps he suffered from what I think a lot of us suffer from sometimes where he didn't feel good enough. He didn't feel like he deserved to be able to do this thing. Um, sometimes I think, you know, we go and we sit down in Temple Recommend interviews, and even though we answer all of the questions correctly and honestly that we've, you know, met all those standards, sometimes we can still feel unworthy to go to the temple. I think we place that upon ourselves. Um, I used to dread Temple Recommend interviews because it made me, you know, go back and be so introspective that I would pick myself apart, finding all the different ways that I could possibly have violated that standard, even though I hadn't. And I feel like we get into that sometimes. One of the things that I've done to kind of change that around is instead of looking at it as like, okay, I need to dissect my life and find all the different ways that I possibly have strayed from this, is to go look at Temple Recommend interviews as a celebration of all the things I've done right all the things I've done correct, all the times where I have met that standard, because the times where for whatever reason I didn't, I've repented of, and now I'm clean. And so for that Temple Recommend interview to be a celebration of being able to meet those standards and a celebration of being able to be worthy to go to the temple. So I think sometimes we get in our heads, we start feeling unworthy for stuff, even when we technically like are. Do you know what I mean? Like self-doubt, I guess, is creeping in. So in that case, maybe he did have some self-doubt where he felt like he was unworthy to do that. Bottom line is, we don't know. I do want to say, though, how strong did Ammon have to be to say to an entire group of people who are looking at him expectantly, please baptize us, to be able to say, I can't. I respect the priesthood too much to do this thing. When I have, you know, for whatever reason, not been worthy to do it. How strong did he have to be? You know, I think sometimes it's hard to be able to back away from stuff, especially when as a culture, everyone's expecting you to do something, even now, modern days, to be able to say, I'm not worthy to do this thing. You know, I remember times when I was younger and maybe my sisters and I were fighting or something like that. And my mom had yelled at us in the church parking lot, was so upset with us and was still mad when we were sitting down in the church pew. And she wouldn't take the sacrament because she did not feel worthy to do so because she had just yelled at her kids in the parking lot. Do we have the courage to step up when we do feel like we have not lived up to the standards that we've set? Do we have the courage to say, I need to make things better before I do this ordinance or before I do this thing? 
don't know. I think Ammon had a lot of courage, even maybe if it wasn't like a worthiness thing. Maybe it just really was. He didn't have the authority to do it. He hadn't had instruction from King Mosiah to do it. Maybe it was one of those things. He still had the courage to stand up and say, hey, I can't do this for you. With all the expectations of the entire group looking at him, he said, I can't. Um, I think that had to take a lot of moral character. Oh, one more reason I don't think that it was a sin situation here is that he had three other people with him, too. So out of the four of them, like none of them were righteous enough to be able to do this. I don't think that's the case. I really think that they probably didn't have the priesthood or they didn't have instructions from their priesthood authority to be able to do this. I really think that it's probably one of those two things. Um, It's interesting when we contrast that with Alma. Alma was also faced with a group of people who wanted him to baptize them. Now, Alma was a priest there in that society. However, he had been an unrighteous priest, and he'd been an unrighteous priest in an unrighteous society. So when we talk about the word unworthy, I mean, that definitely would have fit Alma's description of what he was doing. Yet, and we look in chapter 18 and verse 1, it says, And now it came to pass that Alma, who had fled from the servants of King Noah, repented of his sins and iniquities, and went about privately among the people and began to teach the words of Abinadi. So we see that Alma has repented, okay? And then we get to the point where he does start baptizing. And we see that in 1812 when he starts to baptize Helam, which, by the way, Helam interesting like his name keeps popping up like there's like a whole city named after him like i mean there's helam ammon took a helam with him helam must have been like an important name there in their culture i don't know okay so in 12 now it came to pass that alma took helam he being one of the first and went and stood forth in the water and cried saying O lord pour out thy spirit upon thy servant that he may do this work with holiness of heart 13 this is where it gets important And when he had said these words, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he said, Helam, I baptize thee, having authority from the almighty God as a testimony that ye have entered into a covenant to serve him until you are dead as to the mortal body. And may the spirit of the Lord be poured out upon you. And may he grant unto you eternal life through the redemption of Christ, whom he has prepared from the foundation of the world. 14. And after Alma had said these words, both Alma and Helam were buried in the water, and they arose and came forth out of the water rejoicing, being filled with the Spirit. And then Alma keeps baptizing, but that's the only time that he baptizes him. Like, baptizes him. I don't know if he's baptizing himself as much as he's going under the water as like kind of a symbolic gesture to his Heavenly Father of, look, this is me burying my past and coming up a new man. And so he says specifically he has the authority. I don't know, that's just something that has not been leaving me alone this week that I felt like I needed to share with you guys. Um, and I think maybe, guys, I maybe got stuff wrong there. Please don't send me a whole bunch of emails telling me how I'm wrong. I just can't handle it right now. But maybe I got stuff wrong. I don't know. I tried to stick to the scriptures as much as I could and BYU Scholar as much as I could um, to share that with you. But anyways, I guess that's what I was going to say this week. So I hope you guys are having a good week. I hope to have a full-length episode for you next week. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. 
The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.